0: I encourage you to turn to John chapter one. It's thinking about our world, and uh, you think about when Jesus was born, when He came into the world. Um, I, I realize that there are many prophecies about Him. There, God's people were in hope of the Messiah to come, And, and yet it is as if that nobody was expecting him. It's as if uh, he just kind of burst onto the scene uh, in ways that people didn't expect. And, and he burst onto the scene as it would be today. Uh, a bunch of broken people struggling with their, their sins, struggling with their, uh, you know, their baggage, not that any of you have baggage, right? Uh Struggling with their past and maybe even their family's past. Struggling with their present and the struggles that they have of the day. Broken people. And broken people living in a broken world. It's always fascinating to me when people come upon their own brokenness and their problems. They go, I got to do something about this. And many people look and they search for the answers to their brokenness in a broken world? And and where do you find answers for a broken person in a broken world which has no answers for you? None, none that work. I I would say it this way, their answers are useless. Their answers are useless. And so we come, month of December, uh, we come as as we begin and we, to celebrate and to focus on uh, the birth of Christ, the Savior. And I, I wanna connect this morning, the broken world, the broken people and their useless answers and the reason that we celebrate and worship Jesus. And so we'll be looking at who is this Jesus that we celebrate and worship today. Let me pray for us and just ask God's blessing on our time. God, you are good and kind and merciful to us, and that's, that's most boldly and clearly displayed in the love that you showed upon us that you sent your son Jesus. God, help us as we look to you, as we look to your word, as we uh, look to the Old Testament and uh, the declarations in the New Testament, and then to what the future will hold uh, because of what you've done for us in your son, Jesus. God, do your work in your people today. I pray that if there are any here who don't know you, that they'd be drawn to you today, that they'd be clear in their mind of their need for a Savior, and that that one Savior is Jesus. God, do your work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, uh, we're gonna take a brief look at John the Baptist, his words, his identifications, uh, his claim, uh, his pronouncement about Jesus. As Jesus, and as he does that identification, he identifies him as the God-given, the Father-given answer for broken people like me and like you, broken people like me and like you. John chapter one, verse 29. And if you read through the whole uh, first chapter of John, you see that John wants to display Jesus at the onset of this chapter. God is revealing his son as the one. And and as the one that uh, he is the one, the light of the world, and this light uh, is uh, pointed to and focused upon, and he, he is the one that is in the spotlight. But in chapter 1, you, you get to know John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is kind of a, a connector between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and really the understanding of this is the Messiah, And so John has a role and a place. And we're going to look at his declaration. If you look down at verse 29, John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this. It says, the next day he, uh, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You probably have heard that before, and it's an amazing declaration, and as the crowds would have been gathered, and they would have seen and heard, and they would have seen this dramatic event, and they would have seen him point, and there he is, there he is. If you look earlier in the chapter, uh, John, as he was baptizing, people were coming to him, and hey, he's saying, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the one, I am not the one. In fact, there's one coming. He, he describes it like this in verse 27. He says that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. In verses six and seven, you see uh, him talking about that his, the purpose of John was to come and to bear witness, to point to the light. And so you see him doing that in verse 29. He's pointing. He's saying, there's the one. So who is this Jesus that John is pointing towards? Who is this Jesus? If you look down, uh, down to verse 35, he says it again, this time to uh, just a few. He, he says something very similar, just abbreviated, just a touch. Uh, verse 35 says, uh, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. And so this morning, we're really going to focus in on this Lamb of God. Who is this Jesus? If you look back to to verse 29, it's a little bit extended, and uh, I'm going to do some reverse exposition here today. Uh, We're going to start at the end and kind of work our way to the beginning of this incredible declaration of John. In verse 29, it ends with the sin of the world, the sin of the world. And as you think about, that was the world back then, but it's the same world today, Uh, it's just we have computers now. And we've made a lot of progress in our sin because of computers. It's kind of like that whole thing with coffee, right? You know, you, you heard about that, that. You know, coffee gives you more stamina and more energy to do dumb things all day long. All day long. This is computers, this is the progress, this is man's, sinful man's innovations uh, give us uh, more abilities uh, to progress in our sinful world. As you think about sin, it's a, a very generic concept in the sense of the word, but we know uh, that we live in a sinful world. How do you know? How do you know that there's sin in the world? First hand knowledge, right? I, I, I've been there, done that, right? I've experienced it. I I, I didn't just read it in a history book. Someone, a friend of mine didn't tell me. My mom and dad didn't tell me about sin. I did it. I did it. I participated. And so as he talks about the sin of the world, uh, sin brings about the guilt problem. And the guilt problem and the sin that comes from it brings about brokenness. And because of our sin, we're unfit for heaven. Because of our sin, we are dirty, filthy people on the inside, not on the outside. We're unrighteous. And as Adam ran from the presence of God in the garden, it was on display the effects of sin on him as he sought to hide from God. And this is true, true of us all. This isn't just Adam's problem. It's every generation, every person. Every person struggles with guilt. It's interesting, uh, guilt, <coughs> guilt is the display or, or, or it's the thing that we know about that tells us that sin was wrong, right? It's that feeling of guilt. You see it in a small child, Uh, They may not have even been told what's right and wrong and know the rules, but when you come upon them, they startle. Why? Because they know they're doing something wrong. It's true of all of us, the old and the young. It affects our health, it affects our countenance, It, it affects our days, it affects the way we talk to one another. Are we guilty? And it's interesting that even the unbeliever would know the idea of guilt, of feeling bad inside is not something that's helpful. I've heard of people in the last weeks talking about certain sins and and they talked about this guilt problem and they said, all you have to do is not feel guilty anymore And that will not bring the stress to your body. And so if you look at these things that you're doing as not bad, you won't feel guilty anymore and it'll solve your problem. It might, it might. If you can train your mind to think that sin is not bad, maybe you won't feel guilty anymore. But you'll still be guilty in the eyes of a holy God. You, you see, um, you think about this and I, I'm not a doctor. Some of you were confused but you thought maybe I was a doctor, medical doctor and I shouldn't give medical advice but I will anyways. Um, w- what happens uh, when, you, when, you, when you have a temperature? What, what's wrong? What's wrong when you have a temperature? Some of you are going, well, you're hot. <laughs> and so in your mind you say, well, I need to stop being hot. That, that's my problem. What's your problem? I'm hot. And if I can stop being hot, everything will be fixed. The, the feeling of being hot is your body not working right, right? And so there's something wrong. There's something wrong. You can figure out a way to not be hot anymore, but that won't necessarily fix the problem The reason why you're hot. And I want to tell you, our guilt, our guilt is just displaying in us that we might feel the way that something's wrong inside. Something's wrong inside. And I I want to say this. Something's wrong in relationship to our creator. This is what uh, sin and guilt, uh, sin and the guilt that comes from it. And as he says this, as he says, uh, he speaks of sin. Verse twenty-nine once again, sin of the world. Now, uh, the idea of the world, the inhabitants, or the <coughs> the the word in the Greek is cosmos, but it can be used in many different ways. In this particular usage, it's the idea not of the physical world in the sense of that which we live, the dirt or the soil or the the place we live on this planet. It's not talking about that. It's not even talking specifically about the collective world. As you would say, uh, if you add up all the sins that man can create, it's not talking about specifically all those sins combined as the world. But what he's talking about here is this the inhabitants of the world, the the ones that are all guilty, the ones that are all under guilt because of the sins that they've done, they are the ones that are all in need of help. Who's that? Me and you. Me and you. It was our parents' problem, it was our grandparents' problem, it's our kids' problem, it's our grandkids' problems. Sorry to tell that to you grandparents. Your grandkids are super cute sinners, sinners. Every one of them. Every one of them. Some more than others. I, I, I wouldn't even say that. All of them are the, like all of them are guilty beyond repair, apart from Jesus. But the the idea here is this: some are better at displaying it, <laughs> right? Give them Christmas presents, anyways. Uh, you look at that and we, we see the, the, the sin of the world, that that as you look at the world, there's a common problem. And it was the common problem in the time of Christ, uh, in the time of John the Baptist. It was a common problem after Adam's sin. Frankly, it was right after that, that this was the common problem for everyone. There was sin and it was pervasive, and it was everyone in the world, everyone. I think so often we look at um, different nations or or people from the mountains or from the sea or who live by the river or who live in the desert or who live in the frozen tundra, you know. There's different problems and there's different things and there's different wardrobes and there's different food and there's different everything, but there's one problem, it's the sin problem. It's the guilt that comes from being wrong and in wrong relationship with the God who created them. It's the sin of the world. And so as we look at who Jesus is, I, I want you to get this set in your mind that there is a, um, a problem that you can't get over. You can't get around. You can't step aside. There's not a way to paint over it. There's not some computer program or some hack of life that you can somehow uh, take care of this. You have a better idea. There's a do it yourself. You, you can't do it yourself, it's the sin of the world. And I'd say it this way, it's the sin of Kevin too. It's the sin of insert your own name. The sin of the world. Which brings us to take another step back in verse 21. He says, sin of the world. And it says, who takes away, who takes away. And so as you think about who Jesus is, he came because of the sin of the world. And he came to take away, take away. Let's talk about those things. And, and, and if everybody's guilty, and this is very important to get, if everyone is guilty, we've already talked about that, everybody is guilty. If everybody's guilty, everybody deserves punishment. Deserves punishment. You see, the problem for the sinner or the criminal is not that they are guilty. That's not the problem, that's not the problem. How they feel about themselves is not the problem. It's not the the end result of life, it's not the issue of eternity. The problem is that everybody's guilty, that means that everybody is deserving of punishment. In the sea of humanity, and I, I would say this, as. As, as the multitudes were there, when John first in verse 29, he pointed, he says, hey, if You could see the dramatic, if we were there, if we were there, this whole group was there. And John the Baptist, I'll be John the Baptist, you know, he had better hair, I'm sure. Says um, he, anyways. Um, but as he would point and, and you would all turn and look and, and, and what would have happened is this. You being the sea of humanity, me being a part of the sea of, sea of humanity, I point and I go, that's the one. That's the one. And, and, and what, you know, apart from who he is, why he came, he came to take away, to take away. The sin of the world. And you go, wait, what? (laughs) You mean the things that I've done? The guilt that I have? Not just the guilt that I have, the punishment that I deserve and I I know is coming, and that's part of the guilt, right? It's not the the, the idea of, of guilt and the feelings that go along with it is impending doom, right? I know I deserve this. And so the guilt... That we feel is a reminder of the true problem, which is what? That we deserve punishment. And so, as the sea of humanity, as we see Jesus, as we see Him, we realize that He's come and He has come to take away. To take away. And this idea of taking away is to remove the guilt, not just the guilt. But the punishment, but the punishment. Um, Sometimes people talk about unreasonable guilt, which isn't all that reasonable to talk about. But um, when we talk about guilt, uh, sometimes I I feel guilty. And and sometimes we have others, but even ourselves, we try to talk ourselves out of the guilt. I want to tell you, uh, don't try to talk yourself out of the guilt. Figure out if you're truly guilty, right? If you're truly in, in a problem with your creator. And I want to tell you that as you do the math, right, um, you, you got to walk through that. And you say, well, did I do the crime? Oh, yeah, I did. Was it you? Yeah. Was it your brother? Yeah, he did a bunch of stuff too. But no, it was me. It was me. So you're guilty. You say, uh... Yeah, I guess you can say I'm guilty. I guess you can say I'm guilty. But I also want you to know, it says in God's word that Christ came. He came to take away the guilt. But not just the guilt, but the punishment. But the punishment. And so as I I look upon Christ, as as I know him, as I know that my sins are forgiven in him, It's that he is the one who removes and came to remove the guilt and the punishment. He doesn't just treat the symptoms, but he takes care of the problem, which is my sin before a holy God. All is taken care of. Which brings us to his declaration. Verse 29. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And I want to spend the rest of our time just considering what uh, they would have thought when they heard the Lamb of God. Starting at the end again, I, I just want to say this, of God, of God. How many of you have owned a lamb before? Chicken, goats, dog, Horse, hamster, you know. Uh, that's gross, by the way. If you bring rodents into your household and stuff like that and you say they're pets, I don't know what to do with you. This is the reason Jesus came, is to take care of your problems. Uh, the Lamb of God. As you start off, it's this idea of the Lamb of God. He, in fact, John kind of, uh, as he describes what John the Baptist was saying, it's not a common phrase. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. And as he's talking about of God, he's saying that this is something, it's just not another Lamb. And it's obviously not just another Lamb because it's a person. And, And he identifies the person as a Lamb, but a Lamb of God. In the As you look at the the language here and the usage, you realize that that this is a special lamb, a a lamb that God provides that's his, it's his by possession, but it's also his by provision. And he provides this lamb in order to bring about his will. Will. As you look at the greater context here, what is his will? His will is the salvation of sinners like me and like you. That's what he does. And this is the plan of God. This is the plan of God. I, I think that what's so startling when you read the scriptures, both in Old Testament and New Testament, but when you focus on The the life of Christ and his incarnation, him coming, is that there's all these details. There's all these details and and prophecies and uh, things that are specific to him and people coming and affirming and and you, you look at all these details and it could not have been a plan of Mary. It could not have been a plan of Joseph. It could not have been a plan of the Jews. It could not have been a plan of the government. It could not have been a plan of anyone other than the God of the universe of creation who was working out his plan. And not just his plan, but his plan of salvation for sinners. And so as you look at who Christ was and as he's identified as the Lamb, we know that he's the Lamb of God. Lamb of God to bring about the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is the salvation of sinners, the sea of humanity. So you look at what it describes this lamb as, it's his lamb, it's his lamb. It's the Father's lamb. It's his provision, it's his provision. He's solving our sin problem, he's presenting, this is my provision. I want to say it this way, it's also his way, it's way. I I fear for us, I fear for us, because we all have this independent streak in us that says this, oh, I I never do it the way anybody else does it, I never do that, I always have my own way, And, and, and when you say, when somebody says there's only one way, you say, oh, I'll find another one. I'll figure it out. I'm really smart and like I I, I can really troubleshoot and figure out. And I can figure out my own way. And I want to tell you, if you're figuring out your own way to be right with God, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I want to tell you this. If you think you're right, you're deceived. You're deceived. You're living your own reality and it's not reality. And in the end, you'll be sorely sorely disappointed that your sins are not forgiven and you will be away from him for eternity. As you look at this, you see God, it's his Lamb, it's His provision, it's His way. And, and I want to say this: it's His crowning creation, right? As he looks upon people and he says, I I love you so much that I'm going to send my son. He doesn't send his son for the trees. He doesn't send his son for the governments and for uh, the things of this world and computers and gold and silver. He doesn't send his son for anybody other than his crowning creation, humanity, people, people like you and people like me. It's his, it's his lamb. When you think of, uh, and, and they would have been well versed in this, and, and for us it's, it's very different. We're, we're not used to it. Not enough of you have owned lambs. Not enough of you have had a herd. Um, but, but in the culture of the time, bo- both in Old and New Testament, they would have been familiar with lambs and herds But not just that, as God's people of the Old Testament, they would have thought about the Lamb, the Lamb. And I want to walk you through a few of those pictures. Probably the most prominent one is that of Passover, Passover. And and when uh, John said, there's the Lamb of God, they would have immediately thought of Lamb of Passover. And, And much of the book of John over and over again he talks about passover and for those of you who know the story you go back in your mind to the book of Exodus verses uh, chapters 11 and 12 and you realize that God's people are down there they've been uh, a huge nation ha- of God's people have, have are down in Egypt and they've been grown in millions of people and uh, they are God is going to move them out. Um, he is going to see His people and their situation. He's going to move them out and take them to the Promised Land. And Pharaoh says no, and and so as part of that, you get these ten plagues. And as part of the really the the culminating plague is the plague of the firstborn. And to protect his people, he says this. He says, uh, "Take a lamb." kill the lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And as you do that, you will be protected. You'll be protected. You'll pass over this house. And and you'll know that I have done this. You'll know that I was the one who protected you. And so as they went on from there, they would continue to remember Passover. They would continue to remember the lamb that protected their family or, or reminded of that lamb of last year that protected their family, that saved them from the plague of the firstborn. It was the lamb that protected them. It was doing what God wanted. It was his method. It's interesting um, and less known and less familiar, at least individually, is that the Passover was also uh, in the temple There was a daily sacrifice, one in the morning and one in the evening. Not per family, but in the temple. They would kill a lamb and they'd kill another lamb. One in the evening and and it was a reminder over and over and over again. And so as you think about this, they would have thought about the sacrifice. And I I don't want to be too graphic here, but maybe I do want to be graphic. If you've seen an animal killed, if you've seen them be butchered and and the idea of the blood coming out and it's always more blood than you think, right? It, it always is more gruesome than it is. And you see the animal alive, and then you see the animal dead. And there, I realize that we're in a, you know, with all that progress I talked about earlier. Some of you are going, man, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I, mean, I eat, eat chicken nuggets, but I never thought about them being alive, you know? I, I, you know, they come in those little dinosaur shapes and stuff like that, and they're just so cute. I, I, it's hard to grasp, but not for them, right? As they would have thought of the Passover, the family would have known, and as they would have been eating, and they, as they would have seen the blood, they would have gone, they would have done the math, right? Right? The animal was alive, now it's dead. It had life in it, it had blood in it, but now it does not. This lamb is done. And it was done so that I could be passed over. It was God's provision. It was God's reminder of the, the seriousness of sin. The daily sacrifice morning and evening. Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. I think this is another uh, very vivid picture story. Uh, I say story, it's a historical piece. It it really happened. Um, And and we referenced that in the last few weeks. (coughs) Um, If you turn over in your Bibles to Genesis 22, if you look back to Genesis chapter 21, you see the birth of Isaac. And who is Isaac? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? So Abraham, his son, is Isaac. And the, even as we looked at last week and the week prior, uh, did, Isaac was a special son, right? He had another brother, Ishmael, half-brother, that was not the, the, the one of the promise, right? Uh, that Isaac was the one of the promise. And he was born uh, to Abraham in his very old age of 100 and his mom in her 90s. And there, there was this amazing God had provided as He has promised. He had provided in Isaac that He was going to bless the whole world through Isaac. There was going to be land, seed, blessing. There was, there was going to go on and on. And it was going to come through Isaac. He was the one of the promise. And then we come to chapter 22. Old man Abraham, I'm just saying the truth. I wasn't taking a shot at him. Uh, chapter 22 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. um, That doesn't make sense, what God called Abraham to do. and I, I say it doesn't make sense. As a father, it doesn't make sense. And not just as a father, if I were to hear those words from God, I would know that God knows what he's doing, I'm an old man. I've seen him provide Isaac. I've seen him do amazing things. I, I've seen him take me out of the sea of humanity to make me a special, uh, his special person and his people. And, and I know these things are true. And yet he says, take your son of the promise, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. That doesn't make sense. Uh, It doesn't compute. I I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So in verse 3, it says this. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and, and, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place on which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here uh, with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wo- wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac. And he took... Um, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so that they both went, uh, both of them went together. Verse seven. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, he, Here I am, my son. Uh, he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He was doing the math. Hey, dad. Hey, dad feel like we got it all right here, you know. It's the wood, the fire, We're walking up the hill, just me and you. But where's the offering? You can imagine Abraham's thoughts. He doesn't say anything here. He had already told his servants, he said, uh, we'll, we'll be back. Some have suggested all kinds of things that Abraham might have been thinking. That he said, well... Um, I guess I'm going to uh, kill my son, offer him as a burnt offering, and somehow he will be resurrected. I, I don't know. I don't know how this works. Or, or maybe, I-, I don't get this, maybe he's going to give me a-, a clone of my, like, like I- he-, he was thinking all kinds of things, I'm sure. But m- most of all was thinking this, I don't know, but God does know somehow. And so as he looks uh, at Abram's life, Abraham's life, as the boy looks to him as his dad and he says, Dad, how's this all going to come together? It says uh, in verse 8, in verse 8 it says this, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. So they went, both of them together. Verse 9, when they came uh, to the place in which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. be, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on that mount the uh, Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What an amazing picture, right? Uh, That really happened and Abraham's there and Isaac's there and I imagine Isaac had some great uh, stories to tell of that day as his life went on, right? Remember that day where dad almost killed me? (laughs) Was he driving crazy? No, he really just almost killed me, right? As you look upon that and you see this picture that that story isn't about Abraham. It's not about Isaac. It's not about the ram. It's not about the fire. It's not about the servants. It's about God providing. Instead of Isaac, instead of Isaac, He provided for Himself. And as um, as God's people, or the the people that were with John the Baptist that day, as he pointed and he says, the Lamb of God, they would have had this Passover picture. They would have thought about the daily sacrifices. They may have recalled Abraham and Isaac and the sacrificing of Isaac and how God provided. And, and as John pointed, this is the one, they would have seen the Lamb of God. There's one other thing I want to point out to you when it comes to the issue of the Lamb of God. And it's in Revelation chapter five, verses eleven through fourteen, and this is what they did not think of. This is what those people did not think of. They had no idea about this. You know why? Because it wasn't revealed yet. It wasn't. They, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have. Uh, This revelation from John once again. Now, now listen to this. This is so great. As you think through the book of Revelation, and as you think through the end of what is going to happen throughout history, we come to this place. And in my Bible, chapter 5 says, The scroll and the lamb. And it's who is worthy? Who is worthy to, to open up the scroll? And who is the one? And it's the lamb. And what you see here is this, Uh, looking down at verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, it says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, um, many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain I want to tell you that they wouldn't have thought of this because they didn't know about it. But we can. We can. We can know, as John pointed to Jesus, the man probably had come off the temptation, was coming in and now was taking his place. The baptisms had begun and he's going to be baptized and, and all these things and he is the lamb. But it says this, that he's not just the the picture in the Old Testament of Passover. He's not the daily sacrifice. He's not even the picture of God providing of Abraham to not have Isaac, but to but but this, that he is the victorious, the victorious lamb that is worthy. I want to just say one, one more thing about what John had said is this. He uses a word, and uh, some have said that it, it, it's more dramatic maybe than it pro- possibly is. In John chapter 1, he's, in some translations, it says, behold. In other translation, it says, look. But, but what I want to tell you is this. Uh, what he is saying, he's not just saying, hey, there's a guy over there. Hey, there, there's, there's, there's a guy. Hey, look over there. Look over there. There he is. He's not just saying there he is. He's saying that's the one. That's the one. And as he looks upon the sea of humanity, the sea of guilty, punished, worthy people, he says, look, there he is. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, what we gather from thinking about the lamb is that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for this sinful world, perfect sacrifice. And if he's the perfect sacrifice for this sinful world, he's also the perfect sacrifice for sinful me. God, thank you for your word and for your son Jesus him being the perfect sacrifice for us. God, I pray that we would not reject him, but accept him. That we would not come in our own pride in humanity, thinking that we're good enough, but that we would come in humble submission to you. Guilty as we are, allowing what Christ did on the cross to take away our sins to make us right with you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen.